Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro. It is an honor and privilege to share this time with you. We love studying the scriptures and feel they are central to our preaching, teaching, and living of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our mission here is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, and serve him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. It is our prayer that God would use our preaching and teaching to do exactly that. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, or just want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard today, we love to hear from you. Most of all, know that you are in our prayers as we listen together. Now, let's dive in. Our text today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I have my old third grade Bible. I, I was at a funeral Friday in Lawrenceburg, and I'm afraid I left my Bible in Lawrenceburg, so I'm going to have to deal with that this week. But I've got this one. It has a removable New Testament that we can take out and read. So uh, if you have yours, open it up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Take a pew Bible or, or uh, use your phone, whatever you need to do. It's very helpful, I think, to follow along as we read and, uh, and then, are y'all laughing at my removable New Testament? So it works. It works great. We're going to hear some words from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in the 12th verse. Let's pray together before we hear these words. Oh, God, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for laughter, for love, and for that great gift from your Holy Spirit the unity of the Spirit that is the bond of peace. Lord, we've been working through this four-week series on our survey and all we learned about ourselves. We've been looking in the mirror, looking real close in the mirror to try to see the good, the bad, the struggles, the pain, and especially the hope that we can truly be your body redeemed by your blood and turn loose on the world for your good work. Grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear through your Holy Spirit as we read these words now. In the name of Jesus, may the people of God say, Amen. Let us hear the word of God beginning in the 12th verse. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. 
the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The word of God for the people of God. And so we say, thanks be to God. I love that verse. That verse, uh, what is that verse? 26, 25, 24 it is. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul's broader analogy is not hard to understand at all, the whole body of Christ image. But this, this sentence needs a little unpacking, doesn't it? We get mutual care, we get honor, we, we know what dissension is, but what about that word inferior? What about that word? Who is the inferior body of Christ? Is it you, Mark? Are you the inferior member of the body of Christ? Is it you? Is it you, Jesse, Fred? Could it be you? Is it, or is it Scott? Is Scott the inferior member of the body of Christ? What is meant by the inferior member of the body of Christ? This is the only place in the New Testament where the Greek word, uh, this particular Greek word gets used, hustereo, hustereo. Inferior is an okay translation of that word, but it really means a lot more than just inferior. The word means to come up short or to be lacking in some way. And, and even more, it means to be unable to meet the need at hand because it is depleted to be unable to meet the need at hand because it is depleted. Hustereo, that's what that means. Think uh, volunteers or disciples in action at Vacation Bible School about 11 o'clock on Friday morning, the Friday of vacation. Hustereo, we're all hustereo by that time on the Friday of Vacation Bible School, unable to meet the needs at hand because we are depleted. That's what that is. Last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday too, Shannon and Annabelle went to Atlanta to help with a family member having some trouble, and that left TJ and me at home uh, by ourselves. And I was looking forward to a great weekend, just the two of us. I got him to church here Sunday completely by myself, which I, I hate to admit I have never done before. So uh, I was proud that that, that that happened. But on Friday, uh, TJ and I were at the house. We were getting ready to go out and do a few errands and what I call piddling. We were piddling around town, and he found some hidden milk. TJ likes to hide his milk. He drinks about half and then he puts it away like a little squirrel to have for later. And I don't know where this milk was. I don't know how long it had been there, but he found the milk. He brought it to me after he drank the rest of it. I smelled the cup and I thought, it's probably not good that he drank that, but he seemed fine. So we went on about our piddling. 
we went out in town. We were at a place doing some, some work that we needed to do, and, and uh, you know what happened. He got very sick everywhere. It was awful. He did not get any on him. He stood and projected, and it was on everything, on everything. I, it took me an hour to clean it up, but he was fine. It was hot that day. He still, you know, I gave him some water. He seemed fine. We got through with all of our piddling, and we, we went home. I tried to feed him some. He wouldn't eat much of anything. You know, he didn't want to after that. And so I gave him a nice, warm bath, put it lotion on him. You know, you have to put lotion on these little ones because they get dried up. We put lotion on him, got him, all, got him all dressed in his nice pajamas, and got in his rocking chair with his blanket and his two loveys, uh, Bruce and Barry. That's the name of these two uh, little rabbit things that... I think they're rabbits. They look just alike. But anyway, we're reading books, getting ready to go to bed. And uh, guess what happens again? The same thing happens again. We have round two of what happened earlier. And it, again, even though he apparently had emptied himself completely, he had more. And he just covered everything. The, the chair, me, the carpet, the blanket, the two loveys, his pajamas, it, it was in his hair. It was so bad. So I immediately snatched him up and went to the bathroom that's off of his room, stood him in the little tub shower thing, stripped him of his clothes, and got the shower wand and just sprayed him down. And that water was too hot. It was too cold. He screamed. He sobbed. It was just a nightmare scenario. I'm washing him with shampoo because that's all that's in that bathroom. Nobody uses that bathroom. I did the best I could, okay? I did the best I could. I got him washed off. I wrapped him in a towel. I'm just dripping with the awfulest stuff. And so I set him on the sink. I set him on the sink, and I washed my hands very carefully. I, you know, you have to sing a song. Usually you sing happy birthday to be sure you've gotten all the bacteria off. I sang, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> sang through that three times. TJ says, he's still crying and sobbing. He says, wash mine hands, wash mine hands. So I took his little hands in under the water and I washed his hands. And he looked at me and said, thank you. Thank you. And I just about cried because I was still wearing vomit. But anyway, that's another. <laughs> that is tender care, isn't it? Only, only it seems care happens like that, not always in our world today. When I hear the word inferior, my judgmental mind immediately lists the inferior members of the body of Christ the ones who don't agree with me, right? That's who is on my list of inferior. No, that's not what this means at all. And even if it did, Paul says, Paul says, honor them. Even if that's what it means, Paul says, honor them. And by caring deeply for them, avoid the dissension which can disable the body of Christ. Far better to realize that Paul here suggests each of us is hustereo from time to time. Each of us is unable to meet the need at hand because we are depleted. That is why we must honor each other by caring tenderly for one another and short-circuiting this dissension disease that would disable the body of Christ. Disable the body of Christ. How does this work? I think it must begin 
with first understanding each other through the lens of Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We start there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we also pick up verse 24, and all are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We begin and end here. No matter if you think you are a super Christian or a sorry Christian, the same grace that saves you, saves the other, saves the preacher, saves the bishop, saves the advocate, the defender, the reliable, all are one in Christ Jesus. That's what the book says. And whether you are a Southern Baptist, a United Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, or dare I say a Church of Christ person, all are part of the body of Christ. We cannot escape the other believers in Jesus. The best we can ever do is to just try to get away from each other. But that, that is in direct conflict with the way the Holy Scriptures call us to be the church. That is in direct conflict with what the book says about how we are to be the church. Far better to heed Paul's advice. Honor and care for one another in the tenderest of ways, in so doing, you will short-circuit the disease of dissension. That's what will happen. Now, what have we learned from this survey? We've spent three Sundays talking about this thing. We learned about three unique but very different, or unique and very different groups of people in our part of the body of Christ, three groups which desperately need each other in order to experience the fullness of the body. We call them the advocates, the defenders, and the reliables. We remember that each of us is really a little mix of all of that, but that's the group, those are the groups that we have in our church family. We learned about summer and winter Christians and how we think and feel differently and how we enrich each other if given half a chance that we can, we learn this too, that we can and do get on each other's nerves because of our differences in thinking and practice. But by the grace of God, we are also learning that the Ephesians 4 gift, the unity of the Spirit that is the bond of peace, a supernatural gift, is very much available to us during this time of division and turmoil in the larger world and in the larger church. Many pathways to this unity exist in the data from the survey, but I want to name three pathways to unity, and then I want to close with Paul's brilliant theological move at the end of chapter 12. We'll get to that in a minute. The first pathway, it is very important that we understand we are all political animals. We are. We can't avoid that. If you get three or four people together in a room, factions form, we're trying to get our needs met. We're protecting our self-interest. We got politics, just three or four people, and we got politics, usually complicated politics. It's just human nature, right? It's human nature, but it is fallen human nature, fallen human nature. There's an old axiom from a philosopher called Archilochus from 2,500 years ago. He said this. It's used in the military and in aviation training and even sometimes in engineering. He said, under pressure... Under pressure, you don't rise to the level of expectation. You fall to the level of your training. Under pressure, you don't rise to the level of expectation. You fall to the level of your training. I think that's what's happening now in the church as we try and deal with very complicated realities. When put under pressure, 
when put in crisis, we don't always rise to the level of Christ followers tenderly caring for one another in this wonderful body. We usually fall to these baser political instincts, which include fighting, name-calling, self-interest protecting politics. That's what usually happens to us. We could, with God's help, leave our political ears at the door and invite the Spirit to help us listen for Jesus rather than to assumed political agendas. In order to do that, you've got to leave a lot behind, but you may be surprised at how much we agree on when we begin working through theological principles rather than political principles. Even when we don't, Paul tells us again what to do, honor and care for one another, honor and care for one another. And then that third thing that we'll get to in just a minute, the second pathway, this came out very clearly in the data from the survey. We have to stop saying of each other, those people just don't believe the Bible. We have to stop saying that. They, whoever they is, they just don't believe the Bible. In this house, they do. They do. They just might not understand it the way that you do. That's the struggle that we have. If you are a literalist, that's fine. Be a literalist. But see what you can learn from those who are not. They have something to teach you. If you are not a literalist when it comes to reading the Bible... See what you can learn from those who are. They have something to teach you too. The scriptures are living and active. They are God-breathed. They meet us where we are and they shape us along the way. We cannot control how they speak to another person. That is God's job, not our job. Sometimes we put on our junior God badge and try to do God's job for him when it relates to the scripture. Remember this. We are a people grounded in the Holy Scriptures, not questioning the place of the Word of God. We do sometimes have differences in interpretation and application. We do have those differences. That is okay. The body of Christ has been dealing with this since the very beginning of the church. That's why we must never get too smart to hold the hand of the Holy Spirit when we read and study. That's why we must also be so very careful when somebody tells us they've got it all figured out and can tell us exactly what it means in every situation. The third pathway comes from something called moral foundation theory. In moral foundation theory, we learn that people use these five moral foundations to sort through complicated issues of life and faith, too. We tested for these in the survey, and here, here are the five foundations. Harm care, uh, that's the question of is someone being hurt are we properly caring for each other as we think about this complicated situation? The second, fairness, reciprocity. Does everybody get a fair shake? That's the question that we're asking with that foundation. The third, in-group loyalty. This is where patriotism comes from. All for one, one for all. How much do we value our place in the whole body? That's what in-group loyalty assesses. The fourth foundation, authority, respect. We have respect for legitimate authority and for our traditions, the traditions of the community, the church, whatever it might be. And the fifth, purity, sanctity. This underlies religious notions of striving to live in an elevated, more noble way as we go through life. In general, 
this is not from our data, but this is proven from these studies and other places, politically progressive persons tend to use the first two of those, harm, care, fairness, reciprocity, way more than they use the other three. They use the first two. Politically conservative folks use all five in different mixes depending on the group. This is why we're able to arrive at such very different conclusions when given the same set of information. This is why we're so different. Looking at our three groups, the advocates in our church use primarily those first two dimensions just like we would expect. The defenders and the reliables use all five, but not always in the same way. It's interesting to to note from our data that in our church family, nearly all of us engage at some level with the first three, not just the first two, harm, care, fairness, reciprocity, and in-group loyalty. I think that we can embrace this common ground as a springboard to the deeper theological conversations that we're going to be having from now until the Lord returns as we face the world around us. Learning how and why we think the things that we think helps us better understand each other. And isn't that the first step in caring tenderly for one another? Honor, respect, and care. To say this another way, very pointedly, we must stop saying these kinds of things. And I've heard this in our own family, in my own family, and in the community around me. We, we as followers of Jesus, have to stop saying this, that liberal people are just bleeding hearts with no sense of responsibility or concern for holiness. We have to stop saying that. We have to stop saying that conservative people are just hard-hearted, greedy bigots. We have to stop saying that, too. Followers of Jesus can't say that. That's not allowed. We have to stop saying that moderates are fence riders. We can't say that anymore. That's not a sign of care and respect, of honoring each other. We have to be more careful with our words. All of us just view life with different sets of lenses. The sooner we can accept that about each other, the sooner we can focus on what Jesus wants his body to be doing together. We might even learn to value these other perspectives, even though we don't agree with them and probably will never agree with them. Perhaps we can value them more than we do today. Y'all may be very surprised to learn this. I know you'll be shocked. But my wife, Shannon, and I really know how to fight. We really, we're good at fighting. We're the best at fighting that there ever was. We've had lots of practice in 18 years. We've gotten really good at it. She one time threw a plate at me when we were trying to work out infant baptism before we even had children. We didn't, with children were seven or eight years away. We had this terrible fight about infant baptism. She throws a plate at me. I had to pick up the broken pieces of that paper plate and put it back together. It was, it was awful. She was so angry. One time, maybe several times, she called me a bad word when we were having a fight. A bad word, a really bad word. I helpfully reminded her that uh, we do not talk like that in this house. And she called me another bad word. In, uh, in her defense, I can be that thing that she called me, which rhymed with pompous grass. That's what it rhymed with. I can be that. When we finally begin having whatever talk we really need to be having, almost always we discover that our division comes from a place of deep misunderstanding 
and from failure to care for one another. Failure to care for one another, tenderly care for one another. We've had to have help a time or two. And you know what we've leaned on in those times of deepest division? We've leaned on the covenant we made with God and each other on June the 4th, 2005. That's what we've leaned on, the covenant. I wonder sometimes if we in the church remember the covenants we've made with God and each other at our baptism, our confirmation, our joining of the church. Those covenants help us so much. Like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they tell us what to do in the hard times. They remind us that there is so much more at stake than the satisfaction of winning some political argument or coming out on top in some political crisis or division. And just what is that, what is that more at stake? Well, it's this. Jesus Christ is saving the world one heart at a time, and he has chosen to use his body, the church, as the primary agent of that grace in the world. That's what is at stake every single day. Right now, when people look at the body of Christ, they see a whole lot of dissension and division, and they tell me, I don't need any more of that in my life right now. Why would I come and be part of it? I am grateful to be part of a church that is getting its act together. We're not done. We probably never will be. But my goodness, we are trying. Thank you, thank you, thank you for trying. It is what must be done in this season. We have decided to hold on to each other around Jesus in the face of all these turbulent waters and I don't want to lose a single advocate, defender, or reliable. It's not easy. Not at all. Sometimes we want to throw a plate at each other. <laughs> but then we remember the covenant made at our baptism. We remember the body. And we remember that other thing that Paul said at the very end of chapter 12. Still, I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have, what's that word? Love. This is agape love, the strongest kind. Love and work clothes, love that expects nothing in return, but do not have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have Love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. 
When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. Let it be so in this house and in the whole body of Christ. May the people of God say, Amen and Amen.